So as we start off, I would like to open up with just a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your place. Thank you for being who you are and speaking to us in various ways, God. Today I pray that your spirit comes over me and that my words are just a reflection of what you want to say to this church today. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your savior. Thank you for just being you, God. In your name, amen. All right. So how's your love life? It's an awkward question, right? I think it's awkward for just about anybody, but I'll let you know for a 22-year-old, this can make your skin crawl. So I think it was on a Tuesday when Jackie Hayes was here for Fresh Word Bible Study. She asked me and Shelby, she was kind of probing about our romantic lives. And let me tell you, I think no matter who you are, it's awkward, but it also just takes you kind of caught off guard. So this question was posed, and I think I just kind of like tensed up and, you know, turned red or whatnot. But there are a few exceptions. Some people like to talk about their love lives, good or bad, but for the most part, I would say we would all get kind of taken aback if someone were to ask us this question. So today, you can all relax. Your shoulders can go back down to where they should be and not up by your ears all tensed up. I'm not going to ask about your romantic life. The love that I'm referring to has to do with our community. So, <clears throat> essentially this question may have made a huge number of the members of the Church of Corinth kind of shift uneasily in their seats. Paul didn't have to ask them this question because he already knew their love life wasn't going so hot. He had little birdies filling him in on all the discord, disconnect, and disrespect in the Church of Corinth. People were taking one another to court, fracturing their churches, and getting caught up on the wonder of spiritual gifts rather than the reasoning behind them. None of this happens at churches like our church, like Boulder though, right? We never get caught up on disagreeing opinions or fights and let that kind of encompass our thoughts and worship, right? Well, when you saw this scripture, you probably thought, what a sweet letter. The love chapter. You probably found your mind going, love is patient, love is kind. It is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude, right? We all kind of have it memorized. I want you to take a moment and think about the places where you've seen this. I did a little Google search and I saw, you know, on beautiful like wooden backdrops, this written and put on the aisle of weddings. And, you know, we see it, even Pastor David isn't immune. Kids, do you have your coloring sheets? Pastor David isn't even immune to putting it on kids' coloring sheets. Love is patient, love is kind. I think I'm about ready to get Ryan Yacht a shirt, a Cub shirt that says love is patient on the back. At my grandma's house, go Cubs. At my grandma's house, she even has this framed in her bathroom in beautiful calligraphy with little beautiful, cute little purple flowers surrounding it. She has love is patient, love is kind, framed and put up right above her toilet. We see this everywhere. And we often perceive this as a sweet chapter. We call it the love chapter. Pieces are cut up and quotes are used, sometimes without even referencing the Bible text. But what we have to understand that this isn't a sweet chapter. It's a rebuke to the church of Corinth. We love clear guidelines and definitions. Paul gives us clear guidelines, telling us what love is and what love isn't, and we love that. It's no wonder this chapter has become so popular. 
You don't have to be a Christian to understand that these are good rules to live by, right? Love is patient. That sounds good, right? Love is kind. Yeah, you should be kind to those you love. Love is not jealous, boastful, proud, or rude. I can get on board with that, can you? Love does not insist on its own ways. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is a great definition of love. It's used at weddings to remind couples that love is more than just feelings, but it's a choice and it's a process. It's sweet, right? Today, I wanna challenge you to look at this chapter with new eyes. Paul was not writing this letter so the Corinthians could frame it in beautiful quotes or use it at their weddings. This chapter was a rebuke and it was a challenge. Paul describes a love foreign and only achieved through a power greater than our own. He is reminding the Corinthians that something is missing from their church and from their spiritual lives. They're getting distracted, looking low, and not keeping their eyes on Jesus. So I hope you all have a worship guide with you today. If you don't, just raise your hand and we'll make sure you get one. In the worship guide, there are some questions, some recalibrate questions. And so today I wanna ask you the first question is, are you looking spiritually low? In this world, it's extremely easy to look low, to become caught up or distracted. In hindsight, we're able to see that those things might be petty compared to the big picture but none of us are immune to this looking low syndrome. So today I'm asking you, what's causing you to look low? For the Corinthians, we look low, we take our eyes off Jesus, Jesus all. Maybe you're absorbed and genuinely scared of what's gonna happen on Tuesday when we decide who the next president of our country is going to be. Maybe you're being, being treated badly at work at school, or at home. Maybe your life is in complete chaos and you don't know what your next step is going to be. Whatever the reason, I encourage you to evaluate what is causing you to look low and what is hindering you from lifting your eyes to Jesus. Corinth was looking low and Paul was addressing this issue. Today we'll be able to better understand why these words were written for these people and find an application that and principle that transcends time and challenges us today. So let's look at Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth to get a better understanding. If you read this week's Daily Walk, this might be a refresher for you. If you don't know what Daily Walk is, I encourage you to go boulder.church forward slash daily or pick up a hard copy by my office. You can get a little bit more information. But today we're gonna look a little bit about the church history of Corinth. Corinth is an old but a new city. So in 44 BC, yeah, yes, BC, Caesar rebuilt the city. And it, it was previously destroyed. So this is a really old city, but Caesar comes and he rebuilds it. So although Corinth is located in Greece, it has a very strong Roman presence and culture. It's located on an isthmus, and we have a quick map of that in case you didn't know what an isthmus is. I kind of go like that, it looks like two parentheses backwards. And it's a little strip of land in between two bodies of water. So that's where Corinth is located. So essentially, Corinth has two seaports. This made Corinth extremely powerful, extremely wealthy, and a very interesting place nonetheless. If we're trying to compare it to kind of a modern day city, you'd probably expect Google and Twitter to be moving in. 
Um, there might be a pretty well-known university. There'd be various beliefs, religions, and worldviews there. You could say that this city values knowledge so much that your baristas might have more degrees than you do. The cost of living would be so high, it would be almost impossible to find a place to live. You know, besides the bodies of water, I would say Boulder is kind of like a modern-day Corinth. Many scholars would compare it to the New York City, Los Angeles, or Las Vegas of the ancient world. In any city, there are many disagreeing opinions, but especially when it comes to religion. This place of wealth, knowledge, religion, tourism, and sin is the city where Paul decides to grow the Church of Jesus. In my opinion, Paul was extremely smart in choosing this place. This is a hub for more than just trade of goods, but trade of information. And in Paul's case, he's, he sees this as a place of trade of information that is life-giving. Much like Paul, I think our church founders were pretty wise in continuing the church here in Boulder. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth. This was one of the longest amounts of time that he had spent in any place. And so he had time to get to know them there. He planted the church there. He built not only the church there, but he built relationships there. And he even went back to his trade of tent making. He learned about the Corinthian people and was extremely invested in the church that he founded there. It's been calculated by scholars that the number of Christians in Corinth was probably just under 200, and that's on the generous side. So you would think after 18 months, Paul had a pretty good understanding of the people there and had pretty good relationships with them there. He was able to contribute to the community, and he was able to invest in Corinth. This brings me to the second reflection question. Where has God called you to put roots down? Where in your life is God calling you to invest and grow? I was talking to Madison Wagner the other day, and she has just recently moved into her apartment in Denver. She was telling me how happy she is to finally have all her stuff in one place. I was also talking to Brigitte Beam, who told me it's just so nice to not have to move anymore. She said she became an expert packer of having to move twice a year in college. Finding a place to put roots down is important. Maybe you feel like you've been uprooted quite a few times. We look at Paul, he was constantly moving around. But here in Corinth, he was able to put some roots down, build friendships, contribute to the community. So we know a little bit more about Corinth and Paul's relationship with them. And if you wanna learn more, I encourage you to go back and read the daily walks from this week. So now we're gonna move more specifically to the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Paul is writing from Ephesus in 55 AD. This would make the Church of Corinth about five years old, so it's still very young, but fairly established. Based off the language in the text, in 1 and 2 Corinthians, we can determine that this is not the first letter that Paul has written to them. The book of 1 Corinthians is technically the second letter that he's written to this church. We actually have lost the first and the third letter. So 1 and 2 Corinthians are really our second and fourth Corinthians, which is interesting. But what I take away from the fact that there's four letters and from Paul's amount of time that he spent in Corinth is that he was invested in this church. He knew the people well, and by this, he was able to say some pretty harsh things to them. What we also have to remember is that 1 Corinthians is not a book as we normally view it. It's a letter. It's a letter written to a specific people at a specific time. 
So the church is reading a letter that Paul meant for them. They can't cross-reference texts. They can't pull out just specific verses. They aren't able to read Galatians, Ephesians, or anybody else's letter. They have their letter written to them. Today we are very privileged to be able to read it. But as I said before, this was written in urgency to the church in Corinth about their struggles that they were going through. What we can get, though, is some struggles and issues in the church are timeless. Boulder Church can learn and grow from the church of Corinth. So here we're able to learn and grow from this love chapter, as we call it. But we must understand it's not meant to be sweet. It's a real rebuke to a real church. I wasn't there, but I can assume it might be kind of awkward. This church was, they got together. This letter wasn't photocopied or forwarded like an email. This letter was read out loud in front of everyone for everyone to hear. It would be kind of like if you hacked into someone's email or read their text messages, in a sense, is what we're doing when we read the letter of Corinth. So, these people are hearing this letter written to them, and you can imagine it must have been awkward. Imagine if you had been struggling with something this week, or you had been unkind to someone, and then that Saturday is exactly what the sermon was about. In essence, Corinth is being called out, and they can all feel this awkward tension. Those that were unloving, treating each other wrong, focusing on self and discord in the church, were probably looking pretty low at that point. They were being called out. This letter wasn't a comfortable letter. The love chapter wasn't a sweet reminder of the definition of love. It was a rebuke on how they neglected it in their lives and in their community. It was a wake-up call that love is one of the hardest truths we have to face. So let's read the first chapter, or let's read the chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians together. If you want to grab your pew Bible, this will be on page 1062. And feel free to write in those, take those home, leave them here, whatever you want to do. But 1062 is where we're going to be reading from. So again, I want to remind you that when the Corinthians read this letter, it wasn't broken up into chapters or verses. So we're actually going to go back to the end of chapter 12 to get a little bit of context for what's going on. So we're going to look at chapter 12, and we're going to start with verse 27. Paul says this, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? You have to love Paul's rhetorical questions here. He continues on. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. This is great stuff, right? We value Christian education. We value healthcare, administration. You can check that off the list. And prophecy. Our tribe, of, our tribe of Adventism loves prophecy. We were founded on it. It's in our DNA. Don't get me wrong. I love prophecy as much as the next Adventist. But I hope you see in Paul's writings that we are not called to be a people of education, a people founded off health care, people founded on prophecy. We are called to be a people founded on love. 
Let's continue reading more about this excellent way in chapter 13. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have no love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, again, I'm nothing. These are major things. Faith, knowledge, prophetic power, healing, sacrifice. Paul is intensely highlighting that the greatest gift in the greatest gifts in religion in humankind is still nothing without love. We need to be fervent and intentional about creating a culture of love here in our church and in our community for our next generations. I worked at summer camp in college and I was a counselor and so all the counselors had to teach a class during the activity period. And somehow I ended up with the short stick and I had to teach geocaching. How many of you guys know what geocaching is? Oh my goodness, everyone seemed to know about it but me. I had no idea what it was when I got there. So I had to teach geocaching. And it's actually pretty cool because you have GPSs, you put in the little coordinates, you find the treasure, and then when you take out treasure, you, can put, you put in a new treasure. So it's a really cool idea. Um, people get really into it. They even have geocaches at the bottom of lakes where you have to scuba dive to. Super cool if you know what you're doing. Um, I had a horrible experience. My GPSs were broken, the signal sucked up in the mountains, and I just really didn't know what was going on at all. <laughs> so one day, one week, I got a break because no kids wanted to take the class. So, you know, it was great. Um, so I got to sub for counselors who had their days off for their classes. So I was teaching an outdoor school. And I had two kids, a little boy and a little girl, and we were walking around the lake and picking up different plants that matched, you know, the ones that we were supposed to get. And we were talking, and I was asking them about their lives, about what they wanted to be when they grew up. And the little girl asked me, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, well, I'm actually studying to be a pastor. And this is when the little boy pipes up and goes, you can't do that. Girls aren't allowed to be pastors. So we had a little conversation and I told him about how I felt called to be a pastor and about how God was guiding me in my studies and in my life. And he went even further and he goes, are you sure that call was from God and not from Satan? Oh man, <laughs> I wanted to give that little punk a piece of my mind. But then it hit me. This wasn't his own opinion. This was his parents' opinion. This was something that he had kind of figured out through their talking conversations. He hadn't gone through the Gospels. He hadn't read through Jesus' life and ministry. These were his parents' opinions that he had soaked up like a sponge and was now squeezing the dirty water out into our conversation. I took a deep breath and let it go. So now I'm going to invite my friend Emmanuel up here. He's going to help me with a little experiment. Great. So we have quite a few things here. We're gonna do a little experiment with some water, some colors. So Emmanuel, I want you to put a few drops of these uh, food coloring into this bowl. Can you do that for me? So what these drops of food coloring are gonna represent are nasty things in our lives. Nasty things that we, we pull up, things that we say to people, hurtful things, 
things that aren't loving, things that aren't kind, not patient. Okay, Emmanuel, do you want to mix that up a little bit? Oh, man, it looks pretty now, but let's see what happens when we stir it. Emmanuel, what color does that look like? Black. It looks kind of black and kind of gross and icky, right? Keep stirring that. All right. And now we have this sponge. And like I said, that little boy had soaked up what he had seen like a sponge. And so, Emmanuel, I'll have you come over this way so everyone can see your beautiful face as well. And I want you to soak up some of that nastiness with the sponge. Ugh. Here, let's get a few more. Let's get some more nastiness in there. Okay, go ahead and keep soaking that up. All right. Now what I'm going to have you do is squeeze some of that nasty water into this right here. Go ahead and squeeze it. It's kind of making that water a little bit gross, right? Go ahead and do another one. Squeeze it in there. So what we do when we have negative environments is our kids and each other, we soak it up like sponges and we hold it and we squeeze it out into other parts of our lives. Perfect. Now you can put that back in that one. We'll let that gross sponge stay in there. So now what we're going to do is we're going to take a love tablet, okay? That's what these are. We're going to take a love tablet and we're going to add it to this nasty water in here. So do you want to put one of those in there? Let's go ahead and drop it. Now we're going to stir it up. Can you stir it? Now what's happening to the water? It's turning blue. It's getting a little clearer too, huh? So I'm just going to have you keep stirring. Keep stirring. So as time goes on, it gets a little clearer and clearer as the love dissolves, right? Great job, Emmanuel. It looks good. It's gotten a lot prettier than this water, right? Which water would you rather look at? Which water would you rather soak up? The cleaner one, the prettier one. Perfect. Thank you so much, Emmanuel. I appreciate it. It looks good, and I think that will continue to get clearer as we sit down. Thank you. Can you guys give Emmanuel a round of applause? He's such an awesome helper. I appreciate you. You can go back to your seat. Thank you. So the point is, is that kids watch and listen. They're going to take the thoughts and opinions of their parents and of their church and regurgitate and apply that to their little lives. That's why it's so important for each and every one of us to be a church that our younger generation needs, to be a church that lives love. We just dedicated three babies last week, right? Are we going to live up to our calling to be a church that teaches them how to live love? Are Soren and Peyton and Lincoln going to see a church that speaks the language of love, walks the way of love, and encourages a culture and a truth of love? We need to understand that our discipleship is lived out each and every day, whether or not we want to be aware of it. Coming to church, being involved in Bible studies, volunteering, these are things that say we love Jesus and are invested in his kingdom, but what happens when we become like the Corinthians? When we do all these things, but they're without love, they're like dirty water, or as Paul would call it, like a clanging cymbal. Clanging cymbals are annoying, right? I won't go clang that one, because I think it would just be too annoying. But you have to understand 
that when people leave our church, they don't leave churches that live beautiful songs. They, lit, they leave churches that clang their cymbals. I think if I clang that cymbal long enough, you all would want to leave too. So I ask you in the third question, what is the clanging symbol in your life? What is something you do and you do well? Something that is good, something that benefits other people, that benefits our church and community, but is done without love. Maybe you help teach a class or you're a volunteer in the community. Maybe you give very generously with your tithes and offerings. But what if that's the clanging symbol in your life? How are you going to change that and incorporate love into that aspect of your life? Looking back at this text, we see that these are all great things, no doubt. Many of these things I think we wish we had more of. More miracles, more speaking in tongues, more prophets. That's dreaming big, right? As humans, we tend to dream big. I want you to think back. Go back with me a little bit. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I remember for me, it was um, career day at school. I think I was in third grade. And I spent the whole evening before agonizing over what I was going to be. It almost felt like whatever I chose was gonna be permanent. <laughs> I, I went back and forth. I think I changed my mind like seven times and I ended up going as a veterinarian. I've never wanted to be a veterinarian. <laughs> but recently, I disclosed to a close friend that I have always secretly wanted to be the first woman president of the United States. And even nine years ago when Hillary first ran, I was a little upset that she might beat me to it. So now, however this week goes, I might have to fully give up on that dream. So here in Corinthians, Paul tells them in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I did away with childish things. In other words, he's telling the Corinthians, your prophecy, speaking in tongues, knowledge, and faith is child's play compared to love. A couple of weeks ago, I was at Barnes & Noble, and I picked up this book called Seven Brief Lessons in Physics. I think we have a picture of it. It's a really cute looking book. And it was so interesting, I read a little bit about it, and it was so interesting, I decided to buy it. And the lady at the checkout asked me, she goes, oh, are you a physicist? And I laughed, I was like, nope. <laughs> I am just a pastor who wants to learn a little bit more. In this book, there's a chapter called The Architecture of the Cosmos. Now, if that's not the most beautiful title of a chapter you've ever heard, I don't know what is. But in this chapter, the author outlines our understanding of our world and how it's changed. First, we understood sky and land, right? We stand on land, we see sky. It was a very simplistic method of seeing the world. This progressed and we learned that, hey, we have an entire world and it's all surrounded by sky. Again, we moved forward, we learned about the sun, moon, and stars, and we figured that they kind of just rotated around us. Then Copernicus discovered that hmm, we might not be the center of the universe and that we revolve around the sun. It doesn't stop there, though. We learned that we are a part of an enormous galaxy, and not only are we a speck in our own galaxy, but that our galaxy is a blimp in the galaxies upon galaxies that surround us. Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians that they're stuck. They're perfectly happy with their view of miracles and prophecies and faith being so great that they're unable to see the more excellent way. Going back to verse three, if I gave up all I had, 
but do not have love, I gain nothing. I wanna take you back to the gospel, so if you'll turn with me to page 914 in your Bibles, we'll be looking in the gospel of Matthew chapter 19, and this is the story of the rich young ruler. So that's um, chapter 19 in Matthew. Bible says, now behold, one came to him and said, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but that of God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you should not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. But when the young man heard that, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Some may think that the commandments is all there is to being a good follower of Christ. But the ruler knows that he's stuck and that he's still lacking. So Jesus calls him to stop looking low and to look a little higher. Give up your possessions to the poor and follow Jesus. But he couldn't do it. He went away sorrowful, for he had great things. Even if he did, even if we did, even if we were to give up all that we had, all our great possessions, material or otherwise, Paul acts as a Hubble telescope and shows us that we're still missing the point. Giving up all you have benefits nothing without love. In the Gospel of Matthew earlier in chapter seven, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Paul tells us these things will profit nothing without love, but doesn't leave us there. He goes on to describe a love that is out of this world. In the Greek, the word for love here is agape, a pure, immeasurable, selfless love. The same word used in for God so love the world, and God is love. This is a love that causes you to look a little higher. It's a love that we cannot attain on our own, but that we react to. Because when we encounter this love, we reflect it. Back to page 1062 in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast or act in arrogant ways. It's not rude. Love doesn't insist on its own ways. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is not sweet. Candy is sweet. Rom-coms are sweet. Flowers and chocolate are sweet. But this kind of love is life-giving. The description of love is urgent for the Corinthians to hear this and to stop looking low and start looking at this excellent way of love. Paul not only tells them to stop looking low, but he tells them how to look higher and goes a step further and tells them why to look higher. Continuing in the text, love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I thought like a child, reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Our culture has dramatized, criticized, analyzed, capitalized, glamorized, and westernized this idea of love. Some say all you need is love, while others try so hard not to believe in it. At the end of the day, we fully understand that we crave it, and we fully crave to understand it. Paul tells us of a real love, because the kingdom of God is here, and it's now. We need to stop looking low and start reacting to this agape love and live it. Why? Because this love is eternal. When Jesus comes again, hope and faith will disappear and our eyes will be able to see and understand. But love will continue to be magnified. I want to leave with you peace. I want you to, if you would like, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, 7 to, verse 7 to 12. And I want to leave with you peace found in this perfect love. In 1 John it says this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he had loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You see, here we see that God is patient. God is kind. We see that he does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. We see that God bears all things, he believes all things, he hopes all things, and he endures all things. God's love never fails or ends. Today, if you're struggling with looking low, if you haven't been able to move your view from childish things, if you struggle being kind or you struggle rejoicing in other people's wrongs and faults, if you struggle enduring all things, I pray that you run to Jesus, the author and perfecter of not only our faith, but of our love that when you look higher, you allow God to abide in you and his agape love is perfected in you. So I ask you again, how's your love life? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for a love that we cannot comprehend and that we do not deserve. But Jesus, thank you for calling us higher. Thank you for calling us to a place where we are able to be fully loved by you and when we are fully loved by you, we are able to react to that and reflect that into others' lives. Jesus, let us be a church that fervently loves 
and that teaches our kids and that teaches each other what that means and what that looks like, God. Take away our clanging cymbals and replace it with a beautiful song, Jesus. Teach us how to love like you love. In your name, amen. Mm -hmm.